Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we talk about how our institutions are failing us and how to fix them. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. So today we're tackling a topic that's both timely and likely to have lasting repercussions, the future of the Republican Party and the relationship between the center right and the far right in the American context. We have a great guest to help us with this, Dr. Rachel Bloom. She's assistant professor in the Department of Political Science and the Carl Albert Congressional Research and Studies Center at the University of Oklahoma. Rachel is uh, an incredible expert on Republican politics and the Tea Party. She's published numerous articles, both popular and scholarly, on the Tea Party and American political parties. And her new book, How the Tea Party Captured the GOP, has been published by the University of Chicago Press. Welcome, Rachel, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So... We're going to start actually in, in kind of an unusual way. We Before we really jump into Rachel's research and the future of the American right, um, I want to take a moment to reflect as a group about what happened this week in Washington, D.C. So we're, we're recording this on Friday morning, January 8th, 2021. And um, I, I watched in horror for about four hours from my couch on Wednesday, and I'm still reeling as... Um, as, as insurrectionists stormed the, the Capitol, and we didn't really know for a couple hours, I think, what was going on. It was, it was violent. It was really hard, grim. It was hard to watch. And, you know, I wrote a blog post at the Mischiefs of Faction about one of the things, one of the things I sort of touched on that I've been thinking about a lot is the seemingly very thin barriers between the, the extreme and the mainstream. And the fact that, you know, as I see it, Several Republican legislators, a majority of the House caucus, uh, House Republicans, uh, chose to continue with some of their objections to the Electoral College votes, even after what happened. So I, I'm going to get everyone's perspective on this and have a little conversation. And I, I want to start with you, Lee. You live in, in the Capitol. What's your perspective? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I just felt sick all day. Uh, you know, it's, I mean, that was, uh, you know, I live a few miles away from the actual capital, but, you know, I mean, uh, it's, it's an attack on, you know, our democracy. I mean, it's been many months in which we've been seeing the warning signs. I wish I could say I was surprised, uh, but I'm angry uh, that this happened. Uh, I'm still feeling the sort of like, just physical shock of it kind of just physical stress of this happening and you know i i think it is a moment for tremendous reflection and i i really do hope that it's a, a turning point in which we recognize the threat uh that has been at the center of our politics for for what it what it is and we find a way to marginalize it and keep it away from the centers of power in our system of government. Yeah, I mean, Julia, like you, I spent most of the day and, and night watching this unfold. And likely, I'm I'm still sick. I'm saddened. Uh, it was a horrific event. Uh, there is no other way to put it. I lived uh, up until very recently, you know, not even a mile from the Capitol. I worked in the Capitol. I met my wife in the Capitol. I spent most of my adult professional life in the Senate. 
And I, you know, my kids were raised visiting me there and to see the just, you know, in addition to the people I still know who work there, both members and staff and, and worrying about them and making sure that they're safe to see just the blatant disregard and disrespect for people and for institutions and for, for our democracy is something that is, is very, very concerning to me. And as you know, we talked a lot about this in the past and we, I, I agree. I think after the storming the Capitol happens to still push forward with objections is an interesting um, strategy, but I do think there is a distinction between political conflict and resolving our disagreements via politics and resolving our disagreements via violence. And it's an important distinction. And violence, in my opinion, doesn't grow out of really intense political conflict. It's not inevitable that intense political conflict becomes violent. It's when people make a choice, they opt for violence and they leave the world of politics behind. And that's what's really scary to me is to see how many people and, and how quickly that can happen. And I think it really underscores a lot of, you know, our mission on this podcast, the, our mission in our separate professional lives. And also, I think something that is near and dear to all of our hearts, which is the health and the integrity of our institutions, because you cannot resolve your disagreements via politics unless you have institutions in which to do so. It's very, very important. And and yesterday, I mean, not yesterday, but this week was very, very concerning and, and, and it was very saddening. Yeah, I think that's I think that's that's really right. And you've both raised distinctions that I think are important to some of our conversation today about the the difference between violence and, and politics and the difference between the kind of margins and what's acceptable in mainstream political discourse. I think those are both important distinctions and they're related. I think they're a little bit different. Rachel, do you want to jump in on this? I know you're, I mean, you write a little bit in your book about how you also are, you know, were once a longtime resident of Washington, D.C. Yeah, I, so I lived in or around D.C. for about 10 years. So I had a similar initial reaction to Lee and James. It felt personal almost. I'd been in those buildings so many times. I obviously study what I study because I have some sort of deep affinity for American institutions. So it was painful to watch those buildings being desecrated. But my other reaction was, I guess, the opposite of surprise. I don't know how we could have not seen this coming. Trump has clearly sanctioned events like this throughout his presidency, and we have seen an uptick in white supremacist terrorism. So that in that way, this isn't much of a surprise. And I know a lot of people have noted that the organizing that went into this is not much of a surprise. You can find it online at sites like Parler. And in another way, following the Tea Party for, again, the better part of a decade, I'd seen this organizing happening. And it wasn't completely clear if it was ever going to translate into action. But it really wasn't uncommon for Tea Partiers to be rallying behind this 1776 cry, talking about what they called a legal insurrection, forming militias, all the kind of stuff that borders right on the edge of armed white nationalism. This, this has been brewing for, for quite a while. 
This is an, another element of the kinds of questions that people have been asking over the last couple of days in terms of, you know, the shock and surprise and seeming kind of unprepared, lack of preparation. And yet, yeah, I also have friends who kind of study like online fandom communities and things. And they said, you know, this is quite evident. People who study malicious. And then, yeah, Rachel, you probably could trace this back even further. And it is really interesting to not to overly intellectualize, but I guess that's what we're here to do, to think about how once again, we sort of go back to this very kind of thin barrier between what we might understand as mainstream conservative or mainstream Republican politics and, and your, what you describe, which is sort of party factions and using political institutions to pursue your, you know, your, your preferred ends. And then on the other hand, this sort of, you know, violence and disorder and violation of these kinds of civically sacred institutions. I mean, I think a lot of people, a lot of people felt that way watching, you know, smoke over the Capitol and just the, just the disorder. And now the things that are coming out now about people urinating and, you know, on the Capitol and just, it just feels like such a sort of violation of a national trust. And, you know, that's, and that is somehow, that is somehow traceable to these more, more mainstream and more, you know, as James, as you would, I think, probably put it political kinds of, of methods. And I think that's really the, that's really the challenge that we're, we're tasked with talking about today. And that I think all of us have really thought about in our, in our work. Um, So I want to transition, Rachel, to talking about your book. So you have this this wonderful brand new book, How the Tea Party Captured the, the GOP, Insurgent Factions in American Politics, where you you theorize about what it is that the Tea Party is and how it's similar and different to other types of movements within and adjacent to um, to parties. And you spent many years attending these events and talking to activists and trying to understand how this very complex movement works. So do you want to give us kind of a, an overview of your your research and your your main findings and arguments? Absolutely. So as you pointed out, my research did start with a lot of participant observation. When I first decided I wanted to work on the Tea Party, it was a paper in a class. Um, and I just drove down to Southwest Virginia and interviewed about 11 Tea Partiers. And I was connected with them through their group leader, who I had some vague connection to or ability to communicate with um, because of my, my previous, I guess, association with the Republican Party in Virginia. Um, I went to a very conservative college in the state, so I had some connections still at that point. And that set of interviews allowed me to keep doing interviews. So they thought I was all right, and they recommended me to other people and I started attending events. And initially, I think I didn't think it was going to be as big as it was. So I was doing these interviews starting in 2011, 2012, which is a couple of years after the Tea Party really kicked off. But I think now about when the Tea Party went from becoming a social movement to um, acting more like a faction within a party. During these interviews, the the respondents did talk a little bit about Obama and a little bit about the Affordable Care Act, which are the things we all thought they were mad about, and they were, but they had a lot more to say about the Republican Party. And 
even though most of these Tea Party activists had been active in the Republican Party as well for most of their lifetimes, they were, you know, largely retired uh, Republicans, uh, and we might count them as establishment even, they saw the establishment Republican Party as different from them, really as their target. They were out to get what they called rhinos, Republicans in name only. And they had a number of concerns with established Republican politicians. Um, everything from they don't fight hard enough for us, they compromise too much, to their policy positions aren't consistent enough. And those are the kinds of things we're used to hearing from activists, right? Demands for ideological purity, um, demands for non-compromise. But the thing that was different about the Tea Partiers, beyond the fact that they were half mad at the Democrats and half mad at their own party, was their procedural radicalism. So something that did not make a lot of sense to me was, at least um, at the very beginning, these people I was interviewing in Southwest Virginia, they were organizing in a primary against a Republican. Some of them were even supporting a different party's candidacy. And what that meant was that the Republican was almost certainly going to lose. And this was kind of repeated over and over, basically pick a state, look at how the Tea Party mobilized in that state. And you see this happening where they pretty much uh, doomed the Republican Party in certain contests and they were OK with it because they wanted to show the party that without them, it couldn't succeed. And these kinds of procedurally radical motions, I think, have flown pretty seamlessly into the, the Trump presidency. So it's not that they completely disregard American institutions. It's just that they, they don't think there's any reason for them to follow the rules because they think the rules are something that the establishment has decided for them. And there just is no, no version of the Constitution to them that tells them that they need to back off or that they can't um, challenge party power in any and all ways. So they're just, I'm, I'm going to hand this off to Lee in a second, but just as a, a follow-up, when we're talking about the rules there, we're kind of talking about the unwritten rules of party politics, right? Yes, the norms. And even beyond that, the unwritten rules of American institutions. Right. That's, yeah. I mean, that's, that's interesting. Lee, do you, I know you wanted to really get into some, some, party structure stuff here yeah so i really really enjoyed this book uh, a lot of really thought-provoking analysis about the structure of the u.s party system which is something i obviously think about a lot so a few things that, that i just want to pull out of the book and kind of get you to riff on a little bit rachel so one thing that really struck me about the book was you you have this really interesting comparison between Tea Party strategies in Virginia and Ohio. And in Virginia, it's it's much harder for third parties to get on the ballot. So the uh, Tea Party organizers uh, worked much more directly to take over the Republican Party, whereas in Ohio, uh, it's relatively easy for third parties to get on the ballot. And uh, so uh, the, the organizers there worked more through libertarian and conservative parties. And I, I think that maybe that's one reason why the Ohio GOP remains one of the more moderate Republican parties, uh, you know, like the governor, the secretary of state, Senator Rob Portman. I mean, these are 
much more moderate Republicans than elsewhere. Um, you know, uh, I mean, another uh, thing that, that strikes me about your analysis is just how how vulnerable the Republican Party was to this takeover, uh, you know, because they really uh, couldn't afford to lose even a, a small share of voters uh, in this sort of 50-50 politics that the, the sort of margin threat of this far-right group really cowed the, the Republican Party, I think. Um, and I mean, it also raises questions to me of why the Republican Party uh, was so vulnerable uh, just institutionally. And so, yeah, I want to I want to just uh, uh, quote back uh, part of this book, this direct quote that you write that the, the U.S. Uh, two-party electoral system may breed a very particular type of faction, one that in a country with multi-party electoral system would mobilize as a minor party, but which in the U.S., United States, attempts to achieve electoral influence by infiltrating and taking over one of the two major parties. So, you know, I'd, I'd love for you to, to riff on those points a little bit. And, you know, also, I uh, think maybe a little bit about what the Tea Party movement might have looked like if the U.S. had a more proportional multi-party electoral system. Absolutely. I'll start with Virginia and Ohio. I guess I'll just, I'll start where you started and go from there. So Ohio is a really interesting case. Uh, if, if that were my main focus, we almost had a natural experiment in Ohio because before 2013, ballot access for minor parties was, as you noted, very easy. So Zawistowski, who was a big organizer in the state, really pushed the Tea Party to run as, or Tea Party candidates to challenge as libertarians. Now, that didn't work well. They didn't win a lot of state contests. So in 2013, the state party responded um, and passed some new laws about ballot access. And the Tea Party wasn't super mad about that. They already knew they needed to change their strategy. So after 2013, the Tea Party in Ohio became part of the Republican Party. So by 2016, when I was able to interview someone who was pretty high up in, in the Ohio Republican Party and who asked to remain anonymous, uh, he was drawing these distinctions between the Tea Party Party and the rest of the Republican Party. And he said the Tea Party Republican Party had become the Trump Party and that there were these deep internal battles within the state at that point. Um, and that's when it starts to look a little bit more like the Republican Party in Virginia. The, the big difference here, and I didn't really get into this in the book, is just who's in power in Ohio Republicans control a supermajority in the state House and the state Senate. Um, in Virginia, it's less so. So we could talk about how being an in-party and an out-party maybe affects those strategies, but either way, we, we got to see a brief glimpse of what the Tea Party would have looked like if we did live in a country that had different electoral rules, that had maybe multi-member districts, or maybe didn't have the electoral college, something like that. So the, the Tea Party absolutely illustrates this. And so maybe I'll jump over that middle point. I'll come back to it. I'll jump to your, your counterfactual question and what this would look like in another country. I think that the example of the UK IP is a very good example but in any other country, this, this probably would have remained a fringe party. Now, 
we run into questions about forming coalitions either in parliament or before we get to parliament. So it's totally possible in this counterfactual U.S. where we have multi-member districts and proportional representation that we would end up with a conservative governing coalition that included the Tea Party. Um, and I'm not sure how different things would have been necessarily in terms of policy, but I do think it changes how elected officials act, especially in the Republican Party. And this gets to the vulnerability question because the Republican Party has notoriously been better at turning people out, especially in off-year elections like midterms and primaries. But what happens when the activists who turn out in those, those contests turn out to support a fringe candidate? So think about... Um, David Bratt and Eric Cantor for a second. Eric Cantor was a pretty safe Republican. When the Tea Party first started, I thought Eric Cantor was a key Tea Partier. <laughs> but by 2014, the Virginia Tea Parties, especially in Southwest Virginia, some of the very ones I had um, spent so much time with a couple of years before, uh, had organized behind this college professor named David Bratt, who had no experience in politics, no national backing from the Tea Party or the GOP. And because they were so effective at mobilizing activists in the area, and because there were so many groups in that area, like seven Tea Party groups in one congressional district, they were able to monopolize the primary. So it was this weird combination. You have a group of, of very um, motivated activists but they're also insiders. They had been in the party for a long time. They knew how primaries worked. They knew people who were in or leadership in local and state parties, or they themselves had won leadership in local and state parties. So this is where the difference between a faction in a two-party system and a movement in a two-party system becomes really, really important. Because a faction is something that arises from within a party. And because of that, they know how to use that party's mechanisms to gain power. And we could contrast this with a movement, which maybe is knocking on the door of the party, asking to be let in, asking uh, to be listened to. So th there are a lot of things that made the, the Republican Party so vulnerable to this. I think we can you know, look all the way through 2016 to see the National Party having to, to finally grapple with these effects. It, it took a little longer to reach there, but the 2016 Republican primary process was basically an echo of what had been happening in state and local politics at the behest of the Tea Party for the previous, say, eight years. James? Yeah, I, I'm assuming you've got a question here. <laughs> yeah, I've got, I've got two, but I, I really, I think the Cantor example is a good one because Cantor was never... At least I, you know, I worked in Capitol Hill uh, during the rise of the Tea Party. I was very close with uh, the conservative movement and still am. And Cantor was never perceived by rank and file members of the conservative movement to the extent that such a thing exists as, as being a Tea Party or, or being conservative. He wrote a book with Paul Ryan and you know, the Young Guns. And, but the, he was seen more as a conventional type Republican who would, you know, didn't want to rock the system and wanted to acquire power over time. And then, you know, so I think that really speaks to something that we've emphasized or I've emphasized time and time again on this podcast, which is the difference between rhetoric and action. 
And maybe one reason why, so Cantor may talk like a tea partier at times. He may say things like Mitch McConnell will bring out, you know, the Affordable Care Act and say, we're going to repeal this root and branch, but then have no intention whatsoever of actually following through. And I think that really speaks to a lot of the frustration and angst that propelled the Tea Party uh, to, to take action or the people in it. You know, one of the other things, when I think back on this, kind of piggybacking on that observation is that when I worked for Jeff Sessions, when the Tea Party first arose at the beginning in the kind of mid 2000s, we would go to town halls in Alabama and there, you know, a cinder block VFW building and it would be a Tea Party meeting. And I would look at the table and I've always had an affinity for, you know, intellectual conservatism and all the different strands and debates. And they would have a table set up of all the different reading and all of the different books. And it, it was like a hodgepodge that none of it went together. None of it went together. People were just curious and interested and they wanted to, you know, not every Tea Party or obviously, but the people that at this meeting wanted to learn more, but what they all had in common was this desire to have agency and to take action. And I think that's really an important thing. I like this topic because it really emphasizes the problem with our current scholarship on with how we see partisan competition and polarization. There's actually quite a, a lot of overlap between the parties. You see the $2,000 checks in the debate over that trade, immigration, all of the issues that were really animating to a lot of the Tea Party are also issues that divide the, the Democratic Party as, as well. Uh, our parties aren't as central. And then one other theme before I get to the, my question, which I think is important, is the, is the movement of conservatives. Although I'm not sure there's been a movement, but a movement of conservatives. If you think back to the mid 20th century classic James Burnham, Congress and the American Tradition, and conservatives used to champion the idea of the Congress. But increasingly today, conservatives champion the idea of the presidency. I mean, you can go back to Reagan. But if you look how quickly many elements in the Tea Party uh, moved very, very quickly to rally behind the strong unilateral president after just condemning the president, you know, a strong unilateral president under both George W. Bush and also Barack Obama. And I would note the continued silence of many parts of the conservative movement with regard to what happened on Capitol Hill this week. If that was a Black Lives Movement protest, I have no doubt in my mind the outrage would be skyrocketing. And that's that's concerning to me. And I think that really underscores the this view of politics as a means to an end, as a production process. Something and that's something I've also talked about. But I've just two questions. And so thank you for humoring me here. But one, my first question is, is it really, you know, you mentioned procedural radicalism. And I guess my first question is, is it really radical? But, you know, or is it rational to follow the rules to try to win? Because, you know, maybe they're norms, but you know, we talk a lot about norm breaking, but norm creation is just as important and just as legitimate. And from my perspective, what Tea Partiers were doing were following the, you know, the rules to try to primary opponents to try to take over the party machinery so that the Republican Party would reflect what they thought it should reflect or what they wanted to have done in policy. And then the next question is, is this really new? I mean, we can go back to Goldwater and the effort to, to defeat Rockefeller. And this also speaks to the rational side of things because, yes, Goldwater lost, but that struggle really reshaped the Republican Party. And ultimately, as George Will famously has said, led to kind of Reagan. It was one of the many things that led to Reagan. If you think about Congress, for instance, there's always been alternative power structures because, you know, conservatives in the House and Senate in the 1970s, I used to run the Senate Steering Committee, which was started back then, 
the RSC, the Freedom Caucus, is the latest uh, manifestation of this. The idea is that the committees are not necessarily reflective of their views, and they the party system isn't working for them per se. So therefore, they want to remain in it, but they want to have this like additional layer of organization to try to ensure that the Republican Party has been um, is actually kind of behaving in their opinion. And I think this really gets to what I what I really like about this book is that the Tea Party is it has been and conservatism, generally speaking, has been for the longest time up until recently more focused on Republicans than it has been on Democrats because it sees the Republican Party as a venue that it can take action in. And that winning in that venue is necessary before then moving on to the other venue. And maybe, and I'll defer to Lee and you on this. I mean, maybe that's because we don't have a our two-party systems too entrenched now and we can't have a more fluid system where other parties may rise. And so they have no other choice. But I do, you know, I just threw a lot at you. But what do you think about that? Well, there's, you said so many interesting things. <laughs> and there were several points where I was like, oh, yeah. Let's talk about their readings, um, which, you know, if we want to come back to that, I, I also have a lot of thoughts about their readings. It was a fascinating hodgepodge. Um, but the, the questions about their, their strategy and whether it's anything new, those are things that I, I continue to wrestle with. So you're right, at least up until, so I'll back up. If we take what happened on Wednesday as an extension of this kind of fringe um, extremism or the alt-right or whatever, if we think there's a, a connection between that and the Tea Party, then now we really have moved to procedural radicalism or we've thrown out procedures entirely. But most of what the Tea Party did, of course, was within the rules. What made it somewhat radical was that no one was using the rules that way. Uh, and something that the last four to eight years have shown us is that these norms that we have, that we just assume everyone will follow, aren't actually norms. They're expectations of some people from a certain time and they increasingly don't hold. And the Tea Party was a big factor in introducing that to contemporary politics. And I, I think a big factor in suggesting that we need to rethink how we view polarization in general. So, so much of this narrative is Republicans versus Democrats. And by continually undermining their own party, the Tea Party showed us very clearly that there is a lot of intra-party polarization as well. And of course, they aren't the first um, party faction to primary. So I, I look at a couple examples in the book. The Christian right used that mechanism to some extent, although, as you point out, they pretty quickly jumped on board to use the Republican Party as a vehicle to power. Goldwater supporters did this to some extent as well. But the I think the best example before that would have been the Dixiecrats um, and their kind of concerted effort to build a different party within the Democratic Party. Um, so I think what happens with the Tea Party is when you have a, a kind of separate vision for how politics should happen and it's contesting within this larger party system. Um, I'm happy to say more about any of that, but I know we need to move on to our next segment. I think we're all really uh, eager to hear you talk about the reading. So yeah, I'm super curious about this also. Yeah, so so I've seen a lot of what they've um, read and I've, I've heard a lot about it and I also have some data on it. So I'll just start with my kind of personal observations and then summarize the data I have. 
So I also grew up in movement conservatism and I was pretty familiar with the canon. Um, and I didn't see a lot of people here or at the Tea Party meetings talking about the National Review or Russell Kirk or really anything like that. They did um, draw a little bit from Hayek and Milton Friedman because a lot of their materials were were donated by Freedom Works and Americans for Prosperity. And you know they're strongly tied to the Institute for Humane Studies and the Mercatus Center um, and, and the Coke Network in general. So you have some of this intellectual free market or Austrian economics definitely seeping in. And they did read those books and they did try to understand them. The other part of their reading list though was a little bit uh, less familiar to me. And that was things like Cleon Skousen's, um, I want to say 5,000 year leap, it might be 2,000, I my thousands wrong, which is a book that didn't gain much traction when it first came out. It's pretty much a, a book full of conspiracy theories, at least in my opinion, about American exceptionalism. And there are a lot of other books like that that were circulating around. The other um, kind of unexpected aspect of their reading lists uh, were books about uh, doomsday preparations. So everything from how to stockpile arms to how to can enough food to last you through some sort of liberal apocalypse, a lot of, a lot of stuff on organizing, uh, a lot of stuff on currency and the need to stockpile gold. So these were interesting different strands. And I saw this reflected in my data. Uh, what I did is create a really comprehensive list at this point. I, I believe I can say it's the most comprehensive list of state and local Tea Party groups. And I scraped their websites to see what they were linking to. So not everything on their website, but all of them had a section that was something like blog roll or resources or readings. And I, I scraped the content of those and looked at the network that was created. So the network that's created out of this has a couple of interesting properties. So one of the interesting things about it is the central voices. So Tea Party Patriots, Freedom Works, and Americans for Prosperity, as well as Glenn Beck's 912 Project were really, really key voices to the Tea Party. So anything they magnified was reaching a lot of people. They were the most linked to resources out of the entire network of Tea Parties. Um, beyond that, you, you saw them looking a little bit to traditional conservative places like uh, the Heritage Foundation or Town Hall, a little bit towards Cato, a little bit towards Fox, but more towards places like Breitbart or what we would now consider maybe the alternative news apparatus. But since the publication of the book, I've been preparing these data for public release. And so I've really been going back through and trying to gather additional information on all of the resources that they linked to, not just the most prominent ones. So I've been looking at all of these books and all of the different organizations they were aligned with. And as I've been coding these, I've, I've noticed several more themes jump out. So many of their resources were about climate change. Um, they were very, very frightened of UN's Agenda 21, which they were afraid would lead to one world government. There were a lot of resources about Islam and, and fears of Islamic law being imposed in the United States. A lot of stuff about immigration, 
um, a lot of books about Common Core or education in general, some books about American exceptionalism from a Christian point of view. And then in general, just a lot of, and this isn't books so much, but a lot of organizing around militias, border patrols, um, and what they called legal insurrections, which was less of a, a reading list and more of a kind of online chat community, which we've really seen uh, spread out. I think those are all excellent observations and they uh, very much align with my experience as well. I think what's really interesting about this is that the Tea Party in an interesting way highlights the kind of failures of conventional scholarship when it comes to American politics. But what's also interesting is that this hodgepodge nature, the motley nature of the uh, Tea Party, kind of the influences that go into it and and where people are grasping for for different uh, information or for different interests, really, I think, also highlights how bankrupt intellectual conservatism is today as well. And it highlights how intellectual conservatism has become just another ideology, the, the flip side of the coin to the ideology that they would, you know, would attribute to progressivism as well. And that it's a kind of all encompassing worldview versus more of this. Uh, and I wrote a piece about this shortly after Christmas, uh, instead of like a disposition, instead of uh, instead of something that can accommodate lots of different um, viewpoints. And at the end of the day, what's interesting to me about intellectual conservatism is that it no longer, the answers of intellectual conservatism from the 1980s no longer, not many of them don't, are not satisfying. They don't explain the world. They don't help people understand. And this really reflects, I think, the fact that the theoretical basis of conservatism in America has not been updated in a very long time. And I think the Tea Party, the, the nature of their interest in their reading really suggests that and really highlights that. Yeah, so, okay, this is really interesting. Now I've got all this stuff to think about, but I want to move us into our final segment, which is talking a little bit about where we kind of where we're going from here and what the what the conservative movement and the Republican Party look like going forward. And I want to use this opportunity to, to sort of pick up on an observation that that I have been thinking about for a long time, I wrote a little bit about this for my APSA paper back in, in September, and I really picked up on it in, in your book, Rachel, which is is this very fuzzy distinction between the establishment and non-establishment Republicans. And I, I have questions for, you know, probably for another podcast about whether this dynamic is distinct to Republicans. But it, the way I had observed this dynamic on my own was kind of temporal was this idea which we kind of touched on where you have you have someone who's like who will come in to say to congress or to politics in some way and be very very conservative and that has a kind of anti-establishment edge and then that person becomes establishment and is challenged by you know the kind of next most anti-establishment person and i had been thinking of it as like i don't want to say linear but kind of something that unfolds in time but rachel you i really <laughs> started thinking about it because at one point in your book fairly early on you refer to sarah palin as a non-establishment republican and also Rand paul who is a senator um, and I totally see why I'm not challenging your categorization. I, I think what you're getting at is something really interesting in American politics where those kinds of people can be very establishment, you know, former vice presidential candidate, sitting senator, and also be, you know, non-establishment figures. But and later on in the book, I think you actually refer to Palin as establishment. So 
I just, it really pushed, you know, my, my thinking on that, on that distinction. I'm curious kind of where you see that maybe going after, after Trump leaves office, given, you know, given everything that's happened. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up. Um, And it reminds me of, of something James was saying earlier about, say, Eric Cantor and the difference between rhetoric and action. Because the first group of elected officials who claimed the mantle of the Tea Party, the original Tea Party caucus, uh, they were they were not people who were brought into Congress in the wave of 2010. They were already in Congress. They were people who had experience in the system. So in, in a way, we would say Michelle Bachman, for example, was establishment, and they were just trying to kind of ride that energy and of course the that caucus collapses and morphs and that's a, a whole other topic but something i was grappling with in the entire book was where that line is and whether it's even a useful distinction and the reason i ended up including the language of establishment non-establishment in the book was because almost every tea partier i spoke to was casting the world in those terms and i was trying to to figure out what it meant to them because it's not as simple as experienced and non-experienced, or I mean, even insider and outsider, I think is doesn't really do this distinction justice. But it, it does seem to be fluid. And I think Sarah Palin is a good example of this. Because when she emerged on the political scene with John McCain in 2008, uh, she's the vice president or you know, vice presidential candidate on one of the two major parties tickets, which is potentially as establishment as you get. But as time goes on, she starts to become more and more associated with the Tea Party and and kind of moves a little bit to the fringe. Now, I think she always had these positions and I think she always kind of was on the fringe of of the conservative consensus at that time, topic we ate. But the Tea Party had a very specific idea of what they meant by establishment. And it, it had less to do with how long you were in Washington, although they did love outsiders, they did love new candidates, and more to do with how much they perceived the, any given politician um, going along with the Republican consensus. So people like Rand Paul, um, he was mentioned to me multiple times by Tea Partiers as a non-establishment example, because he likes to at least uh, verbalize his dissent. He gives lip service to libertarianism. He, you know, at high profile juncture sometimes at least takes positions that are different from the rest of his caucus. Um, so Tea Partiers really like to point to him. But in the course of my interviews, because I, I did these over maybe four years, I got to see many candidates rise and fall in the estimation of Tea Partiers. Justin Amash for a while was considered, you know, the the darling of, of many of the people I spoke to. But later on, he'd been in Congress a little bit too long. He started to, the shine wore off. And this gets to something we've all had to think about over the last four years with, with a president who in some ways is, is very much not the establishment of the Republican Party. He doesn't have a long history with the party, but he is established in certain circles of power and always always has been, was born into that. Um, and that question is, what do we do with a movement or a faction um, 
that continues to insist that the the only candidates that are truly representing them are non-establishment. Because once those candidates gain office and have to actually participate in the give and take of politics or have to sit on committees or actually do work on policy, they inevitably will end up compromising or doing something that one of their extreme constituents doesn't like. So it's almost impossible, in other words, to gain power, which was the Tea Party's goal, without becoming establishment. And this has created, I think, a bit of a tension in this, this faction within the Republican Party, because on one hand, they still very much want to claim that they're outside of the swamp. But on the other hand, their whole goal all along was to become the le leading voice, I guess, in the Republican Party. And from my perspective, that means they wanted to become the new Republican establishment. And this is a tension I, I don't think has resolved. I don't think it resolved with Trump's candidacy, with his presidency, with his loss. Um, and I think part of the problem is the distinction itself. And part of the problem is, is much deeper. And it's something that maybe we would need to look to the history of revolutions a little bit um, for an answer to this kind yeah. of, of cycle. I'm going to jump in very briefly here and then I'll hand it off to Lee and then James can have the last question. But I, you know, so I also, I did kind of delve into history for this, for this, this APSA paper that I wrote and specifically kind of looking at the emergence of this sort of outsiderdom as authentic conservative in the seventies. But the thing that strikes me that resolves that tension is authoritarianism, right? Like how, how do you reconcile having power with not compromising that like, that's how, and that, you know, I hadn't really thought about this before, but I think you put the kind of question about the tension really well. And that kind of, to me, that kind of seems like, you know, how, how all that feeds into what we've, what we've observed and how it's sort of a logical extension of that. I just wanted to bring that up. Lee? Yeah. So I, a few points I, I want to pick up on here, um, you know, R Rachel, what, what you were just talking about now is, you know, really fascinating as a paradox of like, how do you, if, if the fundamental kind of credentialing of, of leaders in, in a faction is that they are outsiders, like how does a party actually exert any meaningful governing power if the fundamental mo of a party is to be anti-system like how how can it operate anything other than as an opposition and you know i think this creates a, a fundamental challenge i think it's been a challenge for the republican party in government in government is that you know it, it fundamentally acts like an opposition party uh, and I, I think I remember, you know, Paul Ryan or something saying, well, you know, we're, we're transitioning from being an opposition party to a governing party. But like, you know, an anti-system party uh, is a real threat to democracy because you have to kind of believe in the system. And, you know, I think what we're seeing, you know, over the last few weeks and months culminating with this storming of the capital is you know a sense that what the what this extreme movement is against is the system i mean to desecrate the capital 
to call yourselves a patriot while waving the Confederate flag, to call yourself a patriot while replacing a U.S. flag with a Trump flag, I mean, that is fundamentally overthrowing the system. And that's not a you know, that, that's not a party that is really capable of participating in a democratic system. So on the one hand, that, that just it's just it's just something that doesn't work. It's a contradiction. But there, there's another aspect to this, too, which is what what you kind of distinguish as a renegotiation versus a realignment, uh, which is the idea that it's not it's not the, the party package that changes. It's the emphasis. And you can have a party that cares more about immigration and law and order than economic and social issues, but you know, and, and that could you could offer a governing program within that. But what what I think is is a challenge is how do you have a party that fundamentally is anti-system? You know, I mean, in many ways, Trump himself. I mean, he didn't really show interest in governing; he just showed interest in fighting. So, I mean, I guess the my my question here is really about the future of the Republican Party. Now, on the one hand, you might say, well, okay, you know, a, a renegotiation might be possible, and that you know maybe the you know the, the issues change with that the Republican Party emphasizes. You know, there, there's a little a little more focus on the traditional social and economic issues that makes it more uh, appealing more broadly. Uh, but th- there's something I think quite emotional and deep about the identity of immigration and law and order issues and the the sort of sense of being revolutionaries against the system, which makes me feel like maybe the Republican Party is not redeemable. Uh, and, you know, or, you know, the re- another thing that, that struck me in in the book was that you talk about the Republican Party as a host, almost as if it's not, it's just the result of different factions taking it over. James, you've talked about it as a as a vehicle, right? I mean, it's a, that that really treats the party itself as just this sort of vessel. Uh, so, I think I think my fundamental question here is: Is the Republican Party uh, redeemable? in some way as like a, you know, basically a, a, a pro-democracy party that, you know, believes in peaceful transfer of power and legitimate elections, or, or do we need something else? I think it's possible, but you get to so many, so many important tensions um, and questions about the system. There have been a lot of people who've observed that the Tea Party and, and Trump himself never really seemed to have any agenda besides being against everything. And I think to some extent that is, that's true. And that is one way to cast it. But another, another way to cast it is that their agenda was to undermine the system. They, they, they have actively been trying to disable government um, to say, you know, government doesn't work. Look, we tore this bureaucracy apart. So now we're really making sure it doesn't work. There, there is some component of that. But if we get to this idea of, of what the Republican Party is what the the two parties in our system are. I think vehicle, host, all of those are accurate terms because these two parties have had to act as as catch-alls for the entire range of opinion uh, within American politics, and it's it's impossible for them to give everyone an equal voice or or anything close to it. And what happened within the Republican Party over the last decade or so was kind of a shift in the power players, that that renegotiation of who was going to be 
leading things of, of who needed to be listened to, of what issues were going to be at the forefront. And that, you know, has had some serious consequences, but there's a flip side to it, which is that that renegotiation was itself the result of a negotiation. And these negotiations are ongoing. So as the Republican Party confronts a moment of loss, we've almost immediately seen some key leaders step back. Now, I don't know if Mitch McConnell would have taken the stand he did on Wednesday and since if uh, the two Senate seats in Georgia had gone to the Republicans. But it's interesting that in loss, a lot of Republicans who we've always maybe suspected weren't on the Trump train have become more vocal. So it's very possible that in the next four years, as the Republican Party constructs what maybe Seth Maskett would call a narrative of loss, that they will have to engage in these these discussions and these compromises and these negotiations again. Otherwise, the only real solution would be if somehow we had enough will to modify the electoral system, maybe to eliminate the electoral college and and move towards a system of electoral rules that would enable these these fringe elements to just act as their own parties. I see that as maybe less likely than some productive soul searching on the right, but I mean, time will tell. Yeah, um, I wanna touch base on a couple of things and ask you kind of one last question, I think, at least on my part, that might help sum it up very well. But when I think about policy, I think about Baumgartner's work regarding Frank Baumgartner and the status quo, Schottschneider, and the idea of changing the status quo and the things that it takes to do so and the conflict associated with doing so and then efforts and opponents of the status quo are inherently fringe vis-a-vis the status quo. And I think that really underscores, at least in the congressional context, why the Tea Party is against everything. Increasingly, because of this distinction between rhetoric and action, Congress has become increasingly locked down because it's there's not there's no opportunity for members to become out of alignment with their rhetoric and with their action and policy views. And it makes it harder for constituents to hold them accountable, both in primaries and in general elections. And now there it's becoming locked down in direct response to concerns about casting votes vis-a-vis their opponents in primaries. So if you're a Tea Party legislator and you're looking at a giant bill coming to the floor that's going to be put on the floor at the last minute, no amendments are going to be allowed in the Senate, there's no meaningful committee process in the House, you are left with one option if you want to do more than just simply vote no and then say, I tried the best I could like everybody else. One option. And that option is to blow up the process. And increasingly, that's what we've seen, I think, over the past, you know, maybe not so much these days, but over the past like decade and a half, as as Congress becomes more locked down, the people who are opposed to that process become more radical vis-a-vis kind of that process. And we saw this in the mid 20th century with liberals, with regard to and progressives, with regard to civil rights and other issues. I mean, the, the entire Senate environment changed dramatically in a handful of years, but from the 50s to the 60s, I think much more dramatically than we've seen today, precisely because fringe elements came in, tried to change the status quo. The unwritten rules said you can't do that. Nobody liked them, and they did it anyway. And we're a better place for it today. And one other thing I want to point out is that the Tea Party is very diverse. Some are law and order people. 
Some are very much law and order people. Ron Johnson was one of the original uh, Senate conservative fund uh, senators that Jim DeMint backed. He was he's a law and order kind of guy. Others like Rand Paul and Mike Lee are not law and order people. Some are pro-immigration reform. Others are anti-immigration reform. It's, it's a very diverse thing. And if you even if you go back, the original Tea Party senator, for instance, in the modern era, or at least in the 21st century, was Pat Toomey. And when he challenged governor, uh, when he challenged Arlen Specter in the 2004 uh, Senate race and the system, the establishment, the, you know, whatever we want to call it and refer to that ended up backing Specter, but Toomey came within like a, what, 10,000, 14,000 votes of defeating him. Pat Toomey and Mike Lee are very different senators. Pat Toomey and Ted Cruz are very different senators, but Pat Toomey also incidentally, uh, McConnell and other Republican leaders were trying to recruit governor Ridge, former governor Ridge to run instead of Pat Toomey because they were afraid of Pat Toomey. They thought that he was a, a, a radical force. And so I think it shows you both the temporal element of how things can change over time, and then also the diversity within the party. But I guess coming to that, my last question is, is the Tea Party really the answer? And not just for the Republican Party, but for the entire system. Because I see parties, they're functional, they're tools, right? It's what you do to win. If you don't have parties, it's hard to win in government, right? That's what Aldrich teaches us. And when you think about compromise, compromise I don't know. I, I know a lot of people on, on the fringes on both the left and the right. And I've and what I get from them, and it's not everybody, but what I get from them is that they don't want dictatorial control of government to rest in the hands of their representative. It's not that they're necessarily opposed to compromise. It's that they want to be able to see their claims being adjudicated. You saw this with Schumer when there was a shutdown shortly after Trump took office. There was a brief government shutdown. Schumer came out and said, we have over DACA and codifying it. Schumer came out and said, we have an agreement. The liberals were furious. Why? Because they didn't trust. He said, I fought as hard as I could. They don't know. They weren't in the room. They didn't see it. The process reconciles losers in a debate to the outcome. It reconciles people to take half a loaf. And when you no longer have that process and you're just said, this is the best we can do, and you're confronted with that compromise. And then while at the same time, the rhetoric keeps level or even escalates, it creates a disconnect that is hard to reconcile. And I think with regard to you know revolutions, they occur when the system loses its legitimacy. After the system has lost all legitimacy, that's when the revolution happens. And so therefore, when parties and institutions are no longer seen as venues, as tools by progressives in the mid 20th century, by conservatives in the late 19th, I mean, in the late uh, 20th, early 21st century, with regard to the Republican Party, when they're no longer seen as tools to help them win in institutions, that's, I think, when we're in trouble, is it not? And I think the energy, yeah, we may not all agree on the policy outcomes. Tea partiers don't all agree on the policy outcomes. We may be offended by some of the policy things on the left and the right. But at the end of the day, I think a more robust system speaks to that system's legitimacy and it speaks to the strength of our institutions. And so therefore, I guess my, my question is, is the Tea Party the answer then or what it represents? In a way, yes. And of course, let me let me clarify. So as I was thinking about the Tea Party and what it meant for it to be a faction, I kept returning to Federalist 10, where they're they're debating this idea of whether the United States was going to fall in the same way that Athens fell when one faction took over and you know tried to place a strong man 
And the answer was, well, we have an extended republic. We just have lots of space and lots of people and, and what Madison calls this multiplicity and diversity of interests. And because of all these different interests, he said, it would be very difficult for a faction, either a minority or a majority of the whole, to pursue an, an, an interest that's antithetical to the good of the country. Now, a lot has changed. Communication has um, evolved technologically, and it's now completely possible for people to uh, cooperate across this extended republic. And that's exactly, I think, what we saw happening on Parler and other sites that that creates um, the work of a faction, even though it's a minority of the whole, on Wednesday uh, to do something that's antithetical to the interests of, of the whole. And this is, again, I think the paradox of the Tea Party, because on one hand, the fact that a faction like the Tea Party can emerge in the system, can push the system to its limits, can question institutions, and although maybe the, the institutions are, are weakened by that, they're still standing. I, I think in a way that speaks to the strength of, of our institutions and, and the, the strength of maybe democratic pluralism. But on the other hand, the Tea Party itself has not really demonstrated these democratic impulses. So we were confronted with this question that Madison left which is if it's possible for members of a minority faction to coordinate and maybe to wield power that's outside or outsize um, their new numerical influence, I guess, then maybe we're in a little bit of a different situation. And there really is no good theorizing on, on what happens in that situation. So this is, I think, a moment where we have to grapple with the limits of scholarship, yes, but maybe the limits of a lot of our theories about how, how politics functions and how intra-party um, or intra-coalitions, coalitional disputes happen. And it, it's not entirely clear to me whether the Tea Party is going to end up being maybe a model going forward for other groups that feel somewhat unrepresented in their parties, or if the Tea Party is is going to fundamentally break something or lead to the breaking of something that can't really be restored. Well, that that is the note that we're going to end on for today. This has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you so much, Rachel Bloom, for, for joining us. Check out her book, How the Tea Party Captured the GOP with the University of Chicago Press. And uh, we will talk to you all next week. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.